Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This is Running On Emotion. I'm Alistair Eakin, and I've been speaking to some of the biggest names in British sport. It's a podcast about the role of emotion in sport, from pride to fear, from anger to joy, and all stops in between. In this episode, we're talking about that crucial sporting emotion of courage. It's one of those intangibles that sometimes exists only in an athlete's mind, and that we get to witness only fleetingly in its physical form. It can manifest itself in a warrior spirit, a never-say-die attitude, a willingness to self-sacrifice, a capacity for endurance. And perhaps on the mental side, it's most evident in those that dare to be different, to overcome scepticism and sometimes scorn, to carve their own path, conquer traditional limitations and revel in open-mindedness, the sporting pioneers, if you like. However we view it, it's clear that courage carries athletes above and beyond and helps separate the good from the elite. My guest is absolutely in the pantheon of the greats. Known for his exuberance, he was arguably the greatest rugby league player of his generation and amongst those of any generation. He won 20 cup-winning medals across a glittering career that featured an eye-watering 501 tries, many of them mesmerising in their brilliance and courageous in their conception. He was rugby league's man of steel in his first season in 1988, he was faster than a camera shutter, according to one witness, scoring 26 tries in his 33 appearances for Great Britain on the international stage. He finished with an MBE and a statue outside Wembley. Not too many people can say that. Here's, of course, Martin. Chariots of fire. Martin, so good to have you here. Thank you for coming. Do you... Do you like that nickname? It's surely one of the all-time great nicknames. It's something I must admit I have embraced in later life. Charis was a nickname that was bestowed on me, I believe, by rugby union fans. I think the the late Colin Welland, who who wrote the forward to my autobiography, Fast and Loose, don't ask me why it was called that title, <laughs> says he was at Twickenham that day back in 1987 when I was playing rugby union for Roslyn Park in the middle of six sevens and duelling against uh, uh, Andrew Harriman when the swing low was first sung out loud in, in Twickenham, something I've only just recently found out about. So nicknames are a funny thing. I I think the first person I remember calling me chariots to my face was Ian Botham. I think I was doing a question of sport and he just walked past him and said, oh, you're right, chariots. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but your surname kind of lends itself to yeah. this stuff, doesn't it? I mean, from your days in Australia, there was Great Balls, another another brilliant nickname. I know, but the funny thing is my name isn't actually a fire. It's kind of funny. I've been in many places. I even appeared on the Emmerdale. Me and Gary Schofield appeared on that. And, and my storyline in the Wolfpack 
was the pronunciation of my name and uh, a couple of the characters. One thought it was a fire and the other thought it was Ophia. But, you know, all through my school days and um, before I had any notoriety, my name was Martin Ophia. <laughs> okay, uh, but um, nobody refers to you in that way, presumably. I don't now. even refer to myself as Martin Ophia now, especially when I'm trying to get a table at a restaurant or <laughs> something. <laughs> Um, Let's talk briefly, if we can, about your upbringing, your parents. You grew up in Hackney, didn't you? Nigerian parents, your dad a lawyer, your mum a teacher. Did emotion play much of a role in your family? I think it definitely played a a part in me. It's a strange upbringing, obviously born to Nigerian parents, mid-60s. Childcare was not what it is today, so we were fostered out. My brother went to live with my older brother. Chaik, or Cyril as he was known back then, went to live with grandparents in Nigeria, lived through a war. I don't know know much about the Biafran War which broke out in Nigeria in the the late 60s. I was a foster parent with my um, sister who was a year older than me. Didn't meet my brother until he was seven years old and I was four years old and I think about three were kind of ripped out of our our foster parents, uh, Uncle Les and Auntie Wynne, I think they were called. Didn't know what was happening back then. So it was it was it was strange and I'm sure that must have affected me somehow. How I'm not quite sure. You clearly had quite a disconcerting childhood in some respects from what you've just mentioned. But the sibling rivalry was one that played quite a big part, didn't it? And and it's tended to be quite a big theme in, in all my guests on this podcast. With your brother, Chike, did you always feel you were having to prove yourself once once you'd kind of pitted your wits against him in a sporting fashion? As I said, I had two siblings, uh, Nina and, and, and Cyril, or Chike as he is now known. Uh, Nina was a year older than me, as I mentioned. Chike, three years older than me. And um, yes, it was competition all the way. Everything we, <laughs> we did was a competition. And you know, if I'm honest, I was the runt of the litter. <laughs> I was um, definitely voted least likely to succeed in all life. I'm the only person in my whole family who doesn't have a, a proper degree. I had dyslexia. I was the least <laughs> gifted athletically. My brother was so incredibly gifted. Couldn't speak English at seven, passed 11 plus, went to her, her grammar school, was incredibly talented, played for the first 15 in the fifth form, went on to play for Surrey at cricket, passed all his A-levels, decided to change degrees halfway through his degree, still got his degree, taught himself to play the guitar, self-taught after watching the Jimi Hendrix video, went on to get a record deal with Virgin, Wow! went to record an album in uh, America, got £200,000 and squandered it all, did all these amazing things. And then... Richard Branson sold his record label to fund his war with BA, with Virgin, and they cut him. And that was the thing in his life that he couldn't recover from and uh, and probably, if I'm honest, probably hasn't recovered himself from that. And life is funny like that. And uh, I remember us watching cricket all day. You know, we didn't have PlayStations and so like we used to watch Test Match cricket all summer. During the breaks, we used to go and uh, play cricket and there was some flats near us. I used to have to bowl to my brother all day in these sweltering hot days. I used to say, Chike or Cyril at the time, let me have a, a bat. And he was like, no, you're not. You have to get me out. And I would think to myself, I'm, whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to get you out. I don't care if I have to bowl <laughs> a million balls with you, I'm going to get you out. And I did get him out. But, you know, those things are... Uh, left me determined. I remember we used to have sprints and I'd never, through my whole childhood, never beat 
my brother, but I didn't stop trying, you know, and I've beaten some people in races. I've beaten Adi Maffey, who was the European 200-metre indoor champion. I've beaten Dave Grinley, who's an international 400-metre athlete. But my biggest victory to this day is beating my brother <laughs> in a race down the street, which was our 100 metres, was the length of, or half the length of our street. We used to live in the corner, so from our house down to the bottom of the road was around about 100 metres. I'd never won that race, and I remember coming back from tour. Imagine this, I, I scored a try in the third test, playing for Great Britain in an Ashes series. Great Britain hadn't beaten Australia since the 70s, so like, you know, 17-year span, so it was a major feat. And I remember celebrating at the Sydney Football Stadium and coming back and coming to see my mum and telling her all about my exploits. And I said, OK, Chike, who was, was still living at home at this time, I said, look, I'm going to give you a race now. And I only just beat you, mind you. But, that is you nuts. Know, at the age I of must, what, 22? I must have been about, yeah, 22, 23 years old. And, I, and that was the first time that I beat him, like, I can remember that, and that's ingrained in my memory. Of all the feats that I've achieved, the statue at Wembley, uh, bowling Graham Gooch out in the nets when I left school and had a year at Essex, rooming with Nasser Hussain, playing for the Essex second eleven. you know, those things. But I'm never going to forget the time I beat my brother in the race because I spent my whole childhood trying to do it and could never do it. He'd always it. had it on me. I feel it, Martin. I feel <laughs> it very, very much. And uh, it's, it's clearly... a extreme memory for you that's burnt into your mind. Uh, you followed him, didn't you, to the boarding school you mentioned, Wolverston Hall in Suffolk. There was no football there. You're a big football fan. And obviously, life away from home. Emotionally, as a young boy, how did you find that? It was tough. I'm not ashamed to admit I was a bedwetter in uh, my early years. Um, so I was one of those boys that had uh, a crinkly bed. You knew the bedwetters because when you sat on their bed, it crinkled, which meant the matron put the uh, plastic protector on the bed. It was tough early on, but, you know, certain things in life either make you or break you. I'm glad I had my brother there to support me, even though he wasn't much of a support, really. But I could go to him and then he just told me basically to get on with it. Um, <laughs> you know, being good at anything, as anyone who knows you who's been to boarding school, is a good thing because it gives you a bit of standing. Obviously, I, I was uh, Cyril's brother, so obviously things were expected of me because I wasn't that... Would I say gifted really that early on? But I just had this determination, this zest for life, and I, I don't know where it came from. I think it might have come from my unsettled upbringing, you know, say being fostered, then living with you know parents who I didn't really know who <laughs> were my parents, and then being carted off to to boarding school. My dad going to live in Nigeria, I think in 1975. There was a lot of instability in there, a lot of having to look inwardly, you know, to myself. My parents were quite hard taskmasters. My mum was very firm. I'm reading a book now by an author called Napoleon Hill, and I just decided to share it with my brother. And he goes, you know, my dad gave me that book when I was 13. And I was like, what? And I go on to learn that my dad wrote self-help books and stuff like that. And um, I'm thinking, well, that's where it must have come from. Apparently my dad wrote a book called Understanding Your Emotions, and I did not know that. And my mother used to, because she was a school teacher, when I used to write home, used to send all my letters back with spelling mistakes in. Really? Which I, I used to stop it from writing home, just things like that. That which I, I used to make me, if I'm honest, a little sad. And I said, why can't she just be like other mothers? But, you know, now I, I thank her for the way that she's made me because without what I've been through, I wouldn't have had in the NBA. I probably wouldn't have been successful. I wouldn't have strived in the uncertainty that life was in the instability. 
so the birth, if you like, of of your understanding of of what courage was all about and standing up for yourself and having that drive to to get through and make a success of yourself. I I, I was also struck when I read this that your mum seeing as we're talking about your mum at the moment, famously wanted to write a letter to the school excusing you from rugby. Yes, she thought I was too skinny. My mum didn't really understand about sport. All my parents knew was about education. When your mum's a school teacher and your dad's a barrister called to the bar and goes on to become a chief magistrate, you know, you can't really look beyond education. I mean, that's the mantra of a lot of, of Nigerians and that's why probably there's a, English rugby has a, a tradition with Nigerian boys because, you know, education was number one and a lot of the better schools in England were rugby focused. So you've got the Harrimans, the, the Bogus, the Bayes, the Chris Otis. So many Nigerian names who are associated with English rugby. You mentioned that you didn't, certainly at that point, consider yourself mega-talented for any particular reason, and yet you scored try after try after try, didn't you? Buckets of them. Did Do you remember that giving you an emotional rush, if you like, right from the start, like you were kind of doing what you were born to do? Everything I've done in my life, I think, has been on emotion whether it's looking for love, looking for some kind of fulfillment, just the rush of scoring a try. Uh, my earliest sporting memory was probably being at primary school, and I remember losing in the final of um, uh, a house cup competition at primary school. It was a football competition, and I remember the, the, the emotion I felt after losing. It, I, I was literally in tears, and it was just a cardboard. To this day, I can't remember, it was a cardboard cup with silver paper on it. For, for me, that was the World Cup. And I remember my brother teasing me. I think he'd come to watch. And my sister as well, and I think, uh, were teasing me. That was one of the worst days of my life. So I knew what losing felt like, and I didn't want to do it. But then I also knew what scoring a try felt like and scoring a goal when I was at primary school. And those feelings, I just wanted to, to recreate that feeling every time. And and I even remember at Wigan, and some people used to think that, because are you mad? But I used to get such a buzz out of scoring a hat-trick in training. And so when I was on a pitch to score a hat-trick, when you know the opposition are trying to uh, stop you, and it used to become a thing that, you know, players used to come up to me and go, you ain't scoring a hat-trick today. And I just think, yeah, yeah, you think so? You think so? It became obsession. So if you have that desire that you can link up that into any field, that is one of the most powerful tools. And um, I think I tapped into those emotions and those desires, and I wanted to do that. It was a desire. I just love the, the thrill of scoring a try, you know, of being in that centre of attention. Maybe I didn't get that kind of attention at home. I don't know. You know, as I say, my brother was the golden child. He was the one who got everything given to him. I even remember to this day that in my family, I was never given anything for Christmas, really. I think I remember my brother got a bike and he sold it to David Soroff down the road. So I didn't even get it. So the only way I got a bike was I found a frame somewhere and might have stole some tires and, and put things together. And that's the only way I got a bike. But those things drive you on. And I think people might call them disadvantages, but no, that's why in life, Every problem is a blessing. Sean Edwards taught me a lesson as well, and that's the most powerful force on this planet, is the spoken word attached to emotion. 
If you have that, you have the most powerful force. You only have to look at the people like Muhammad Ali, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela. If you can grasp the spoken word and attach emotion to it, that moves mountains. It's emotion that gives you bravery. You know, without emotion, you cannot be brave. <laughs> Impossible. You started life as a rugby union player, didn't you? Started moving through the ranks of Roslyn Park, top scorer both your seasons there. Is that where you found, in your mind, all your best attributes, your your speed, obviously, but your balance, your strength, your instincts, all, all those attributes that took you to the very top? No. Uh, the first time the light bulb came on in my head, rugby-wise, I was playing for Ipswich Rugby Club. They put me in the Colts, and that's when I started to, you know, do incredible things, and um, I think I scored some uh, quite amazing try in the the final of the Suffolk Cup, playing for Ipswich, and that's when I kind of thought to myself, "Wow, you know, I'm leaving people, and I'm doing things that were even astounding myself." And um, that was the the birth of me, really playing against men as a schoolboy and doing incredible things. Then at Roslyn Park is when I started to become. I wouldn't even say national notoriety, but notoriety within the sport of rugby. Obviously, you're playing against Harlequins. I'm playing against Wasps. You're on the radar. You're on the radar. And then I kind of burst onto the scene going to the uh, Hong Kong Sevens. I think really changed my life. And again, it was a, a decision of bravery that took me there. Still living at home. My mum said, no, you're not going. And it was the biggest decision in my life to defy my parents, to defy my mum. To get my passport, I knew where my passport was. I got it, and I went. That takes courage, and that <laughs> that does take courage. I think going to boarding school, but I just knew that I had to go. I had this opportunity. I was playing for a few invitational sides. You know, my dream was to go to Cambridge University and get blue. That's what I wanted to do, but I just wasn't smart enough. I think I played in a few exhibition games, but you know, I just couldn't get the qualifications. I, I just wasn't there mentally. But I knew going that the opportunity to go and play for the Penguins in Hong Kong would change my life, and it did. I got to score a winning try against Samoa in the quarterfinal. I got to play against the All Blacks, and I did such great things in that competition. The first time I'd ever signed an autograph, and I came back, and all of a sudden, you know, people were talking about me, articles were written about me. I got picked as the uncapped player in the bar bars that year. Uh, I got to play for uh, England students. I was literally an internet sensation before the internet. That was you in 1987. That was so very, very close, actually, to the to the England World Cup England World campaign, Cup. the first yeah. Rugby Union World Cup in, in 87. But it had put you in a different space, hadn't it, in terms of the public consciousness and people were now aware of your talents. Your, your move to rugby league, well chronicled, Martin, famously spotted by Dougie Lawton, the witness coach, and his sidekick, Eddie McDonald. It, it, it was a big step for you to take, though, wasn't it? You were 21. You'd never played rugby league. You'd never been to witness. You weighed less than 12 stone wet through. And, of course, as mentioned, you, you were potentially on the cusp of what might have been a full England rugby union cap for all the money that you were offered. That surely took huge courage to, to step into the unknown the way you did. Absolutely. Moving to rugby league was a massive decision. One that took courage. Don't know where it came from, but it just made sense. You know, in life, trust your gut. Always trust your gut in life. If I hadn't made that decision, who knows where I've been. People may have said, yeah, you may have, uh, you know, got an England cap, you know, but there are many people who have got England caps, you know, since I switched to, to rugby league who, but who haven't created a legacy. It was a big decision, one that I didn't take lightly. Looking after players and supporting players then weren't really um, 
high on anyone's agenda. Roslyn Park got me a, a job during the summer of 87. I don't think I managed to save a few quid, but that was probably about all the support I got. So I was open to rugby league, you know. So on that basis, what support network did you have in Widnes? You had no relatives there. You would have been, I imagine, one of very few black people in Widnes at the time. How much emotional support did you receive on arrival? I had uh, Doug Lawton. He was like a father to me. At first, I thought he was just blowing smoke up my whatever, <laughs> the proverbial, to get me to sign. But no, he really took me in. He told me these great stories. Again, it's emotion. You know, he told me some great stories about about players he'd signed in the past, about how I was going to be the best of all of them, about what he saw in my future. And he said to me, when will rugby union be professional? You've got the chance to be the best that you can be because you can spend your whole time training. And I thought to myself, wow, that was the thing that it wasn't the money really, you know. It was just the fact they said to me, yes, you're going to get as much time as you want to be the best that you can be. He talked about some of the legends of the game. I'd seen the Challenge Cup final, you know, the pageantry. I thought, God, imagine that, being at Wembley in front of 80,000 people and running the length of the field. You know, I thought to myself, imagine if I could do that. So that stoked something in me, you know, it, it gave me a new dream. My dream was to be the best rugby player that I could be. And um, he just ignited a, a new flaming me because I always think in life it's it's not the money it's the bigger things it's the bigger it's the pictures it's the legacy that's what inspires you in life you know money is yeah it comes and goes and you want it but when you have that that that's unstoppable you know if you're just getting up in the morning to do something for the money for the wage bill sometimes that doesn't get you through the tough times but when you have that dream I remember the first time I saw Viv Richards and he had a sponsored car with his name on it and that was a thing that uh, that drove I thought to myself I need to have one of those <laughs> and I remember the first time I got a car and even now people just think what you had a car with your name on it but as a kid that was, was only, everything it was only cricketers who used to have them I remember but to have a car with your name on it and those things drove me they just drove me to succeed it certainly did I mean, drove you to succeed drove you to a great deal drove you to a club record 42 tries in your first season was it 58 in yeah. in the second five in a match against Warrington alone a ridiculous eight hat tricks I mean I'm guessing your teammates bought into your arrival quite fast with those, those sorts of numbers absolutely it was um, I became the self-fulfilling prophecy I didn't score for three games. And I remember, again, so many things in my life I'm never going to forget. I'll be an old man and I'll remember these things, these words of emotion that changed my life. Doug Lawton <laughs> just came up to me after the third game at Runcorn and he gave a little pat on the back and said, Martin, I can't buy a try-scoring winger who doesn't score any tries. <laughs> and I just and I went out that day. I scored two tries that day and I broke the first division consecutive games try scoring record I think I scored in 15 consecutive games from that day on and from that moment on I didn't stop scoring tries I'm Alex Rodriguez and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg this is The Deal each week you're here as in conversation with business icons this show will explore deal making across sports media and entertainment that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. 
And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So all four seasons at Widners, you were top try scorer, and then came the big money move even bigger money move to the all-star team of Wigan. January 92, world record transfer fee, £440,000. Again, another move that took courage, Martin. Obviously, it was lucrative, but it was also acrimonious, wasn't it? It was quite emotionally challenging for you. Oh, absolutely. Imagine if somebody wants to take away from you something that you desire most. The year before I joined Widness, they got to a Challenge Cup semi-final, but I think they also nearly got relegated. And then for those four years, I was the top try scorer every single year. Uh, we won back-to-back championships. We were the first official world club winners. And then that person decides they want to leave. You're not going to want them to go. So I was adamant that I wanted to go. I, I felt I'd done everything that I'd done at Witness. I was, again, had a desire to be on that big stage. People say arguably my greatest performance on a rugby field is not that try at Wembley, but the try that I scored, my final try of my hat-trick try in the 1989 championship decider against Wigan, where Ellery Hanley's on that opposite team. Mark Preston, Dean Bell, so many great players Wigan had out that day, but I scored arguably the greatest try I've ever scored. And I think Morris Lindsay said that was the day they wanted to get me to Wigan. And they didn't want me to go. I had to sit out for half a season. They literally said to me, either you play for us or you'll never play it again. And I said, no, this is this is wrong. I've been here for four years. I've given you great service because I probably would have stayed at Witness if they had offered me, I don't know, 250000 a year. But I thought that's what I valued I, I was worth. But they told me I was not worth that. They told me I was not worth £75,000. Amazing. Was, but now you're coming to sell me. I'm worth 750000 So I just stuck to my guns. They did everything to, to get me to break. They, they, they stopped, obviously stopped paying me. They stopped paying my, my mortgage. They took my car away from me, did everything. There was a lot of acrimony between myself and the club for, for years. I got inducted into the Wigan Hall of Fame and the Rugby League Hall of Fame before I ever got inducted into the, the Witness Hall of Fame Imagine. because there was so much because they didn't want to let me go. But I'm just saying, well, you got me for nothing. I've given you such great service. Then let me go. Don't ruined me they were just prepared to let that die and I said no that cannot happen eventually you did get to Wigan it yeah. might have taken you a rather circuitous pathway but at that stage they'd won four challenge cups in a row hadn't they before you joined you helped make that a barely believable eight I'm just Pressure. going to allow myself to really get to grips with these numbers Martin astonishing strike rate at Wigan 186 tries in 159 games just ridiculous. And obviously a golden period with the likes of yourself, Sean Edwards, Kevin Iroh, Andy Farrell. The try scoring was incredible. Can you talk to me about the emotional drive of that Wigan team? Because I've read that they saw themselves as kind of ruthless sporting assassins, cold, clinical, controlled, composed. Was, was that the way it was or was it fiery? Oh, 100%. And I remember the first time I ever played against Wigan was on a wet, cold night at Norton Park. I was a novice. I was a, a sapling, <laughs> just a, a young pup. And I remember walking into the change room 
everyone's like, oh, we're going to hear it. So I just remember popped my head out and they just walked past, all looking down, not a smile on them, just no emotion, just fixed and focused. And I thought, hang on a minute, mate. It's only a choose of like, that game. It's not, it's not World Cup final. Chill out, boys. But that was the focus of the team. And I remember coming close to people like Ellery Hanley and, and Sean Edwards when I'm playing for Great Britain and just playing against them, them being so ruthless towards me, you know, like people that I am so-called friends with, you know, I'm spending time at Ellery Hanley's house. I'm in his sauna with him, you know. Um, we struck up a friendship because of we went on tour with each other in 88. And then the guy would be ruthless with me, step on my ankle, would headbutt me in a game. I thought, man, I just couldn't get my head around this. I'm the kind of guy, if you're my mate, I don't care if I'm in a game, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to try and score a try because my thing was about scoring tries. There was no aggressive mentality or that thing. I didn't have that. But they had this ruthless streak in them, Wigan. And that's why I think I went up a notch as a player, learned so many more things because they had this culture. And not a culture that's put down from the outside. It was a culture that was from within. The dial was turned up tenfold at Wigan. You know, you can split Wigan's eight-year um, dominance of the Challenge Cup into four. You know, the Kevin Iro, Ellery Hanley years. And then it was the, the last... That year's was the Martin of Fire, the Jason Robinson, the Andy Farrell, those years. So there's a great argument in Wigan, you know, which was the greatest era? Was it the ones before? It was the ones after? Ellery Hanley, I'll hold my hands up to this day, is definitely the greatest British rugby league player to ever play the game. But it's not about that for me. It wasn't about being the greatest. For me, it was about desire, passion, legacy, creating moments, emotion, courage, bravery. Those are the things that drove me. You know, people to this day knew I wasn't the best. And even when I, I'd signed for Wigan, people saying, he's rubbish. <laughs> what are you spending all that money on him for? And so I had that, you know. So even in 93, I had that. I had a, a great 92, but my 93 was not that great. And, you know, I had so much pressure on me to still perform because of that price tag. And you had all that pressure and you delivered all those tries Martin, your try scoring legendary, and of course there were some total screamers in amongst them, none better or more fondly remembered than the first of, of your two at Wembley in the Challenge Cup final, 1994 against Leeds. Many people still believe, don't they, that it's the greatest try of all time. Did you need courage to set off from pretty much your own goal line that day? <laughs> was it instinct? I think it was instinct. It's true what people say. When you are truly in the moment, everything is slow down and you know those moments of clarity that you have it is divine because on that moment on that given time it is more than you I don't care what anyone says you are blessed and you are thinking but you're not thinking and it is truly your subconscious and it's a, it's a scary thing sometimes because if you're not in control of it it can freak people out and that's why people they say on the big occasion you freeze the fight or flight mechanism and uh, to master that and to be master of your emotions and to be in that moment and to trust your emotions and I woke up that morning to a Daily Mirror article I've still got it on my Instagram page it's a poster a picture of me with finished on I remember when I read it thinking if someone likes me, they don't want a picture of finished on. So I couldn't understand why Alex Murphy wrote that story. And ironically, Alex Murphy is one of the people who I'll be next to for eternity, if statues last for eternity, because he's on the Wembley statue with me and wrote a story that I was finished and I was the best of a bad bunch. And after all of what I've achieved, who needs more motivation than that to go out? And not only that, I'm playing against Jim Fallon, and I had a chip on my shoulder because all the rugby union players who came, the Scott Gibbs, the Scott Quinnells, 
the Alan Tates, they were all great internationals, all played in World Cups, all played in... Oh, it was just no one, you know what I mean? And yet again, I'm thought to myself, I'm going out here to play against Jim Fallon. I would have died to have what Jim Fallon had, to be able to play for Bath and to play for England. Even to this day, I'm jealous of him for having that. And that's what drove me. And I'm, on that day, I'm thinking, you're saying I'm finished and I'm playing against a guy who's achieved things that I haven't achieved. I'm like, mate, you're having it today. If I die on this pitch today, then I have to die. You know what I mean? And that's what mentality we used to have back at Wigan. It was like we used to have a saying, which I think Great Britain and Mal Riley adopted. It was like hit the beach, which was, a, I think, a saying from the, the GIs when they hit the Normandy beaches. You knew you weren't really going to die today, but you have to have the mindset that if you did, I'm okay with it. And if you have that mindset, you can create. I can feel it now. That I feel like I burst through that wall because that is a powerful emotion. I said, when you mix words with emotion, that moves nations, let alone moves yourself. And imagine if we'd lost that Challenge Cup final. Everyone was so scared to be part of that Wigan team that lost in the Challenge Cup final because of all the great things that I'd done before. I'd done it, but I still hadn't done enough. I'd, I'd scored two tries. I'd taught great tries. I'd, I'd won the, the Lance Todd. And then in 93 as well, ironically playing against Widnes, got knocked out by a so-called friend, <laughs> Richie Ayers, of well, we've, we've made up now, and had a, a dismal 93. And then to go back in 94 with all that on me, I was like, I was, no, this is my year. I'm thinking, I still didn't achieve what I wanted to achieve because I didn't score a hat-trick. <laughs> it's okay though because you, you have to, make, okay. you, you have to okay. make peace with that it's not surely. okay because it was the 26th anniversary of that try this year Phil Clark sent me a cake in the form of me kneeling for celebration in, in celebration and uh, because he threw me a dodgy pass and then um, Francis Cummins went all the, the whole length of the field and scored a try and I, to this day people say aren't you happy about you scored you scored that try which is remembered and there's a statue of it by thinking I still should have scored a hat-trick and then Robbie Paul went and scored one in 96 on a losing Bradford team against St Helens. But hey-ho. And there it went. Hey-ho. Well, the, the moment, happily, has been immortalised, as you yes. mentioned, with the iconic statue outside Wembley. We, we'll touch on that in a moment or two. Can we talk just briefly about your celebrations more generally, Martin? You were a showman, weren't you? Yeah. Gr groundbreaking to some extent in, yeah. in that way. You dared to be different, didn't yeah. you? To be successful, you have to identify something that you want to achieve. Then you have to track it. And then when you reach the goal, you celebrate it. So obviously, identified I wanted to score tries. I um, worked out how I'm going to get there and worked out the process. And that was by watching people like Ellery Hanley and Sean Edwards and David Campese and, and just learning all their tricks and taking them all. I learned how to be a support player. Tick. That is just follow the ball. And Ellery Hanley and uh, Sean Edwards did that exquisitely. But I kept thinking, I can do what you can do, but you can't do what I can do. You haven't got that pace. You haven't got that balance. You can't go outside. You haven't got the freedom to do that because you don't play on the wing. Wing gives you so much freedom to do whatever you want to do. I learned that from Campesi. So I've learned all these things. I've identified how to get there. And then when I get there, I score the try. You have to celebrate. If you don't celebrate your wins, what is the point of doing it in the first place? <laughs> it's pointless. So a lot of people, they get success and then like they're not happy. What's the point of that? What's the point of doing all that work and then you get what you want and then you're not happy? So as soon as I got what I want, I scored the try, I enjoyed myself and I knew that that antagonised other people which fed into my success because I wanted to do it more because I enjoyed making people upset. I created this ball of success of try scoring 
But I thought to myself, the only thing that was going to break it is if I get injured. I thought, if I don't get injured, that's it. I'm the top try scorer. It just doesn't make sense. How can it not happen? I've, I've worked out. I've got the cheat code. I've worked it out. Amazing to have the cheat code. That's what I, that's, it's like playing a video game. Literally countless hundreds, thousands, probably millions of people out there who would love to have had your cheat code. I want to talk to you, if possible, about racism. The cultural landscape was very different in the 80s and the 90s, not in a good way, really, as regards this topic. The sport of rugby league did have a history, didn't it, of, of black stars, perhaps the greatest of all time, Billy Boston, Sean for Wigan and, and Great Britain in the 50s and 60s, Clive Sullivan of Hull, captain Great Britain in the early 70s. You've mentioned Ellery Hanley similarly in the late 80s. How much... Abuse, though, did you encounter and how much did it affect you? What, what kind of courage did you need to, to handle it, to deal with it emotionally? Well, I could be here all day <laughs> discussing this, but I'll try and be succinct. It's ironic, really, because there's overt racism and there's covert racism. In rugby union, I didn't really experience any kind of racism whatsoever, but I did feel that my advancement was impeded within the sport. Then I switched to rugby league and, as you say, it has a history of championing black athletes. Clive Sullivan, the first black captain of any English side. Ellery Hanley, the first black coach of any English side. Yet again, I received so much over and in-your-face racism. I just thought it was ridiculous. I just used to look at people in their faces, like look at them in the eyes, like I'm looking at you in the eyes. If you have the confidence to stare at somebody in the eyes for uh, an extended period of time, that makes some people uncomfortable. It also gets you to understand people. And I used to use it on the on a rugby pitch. And I used to say to people, if I can look in your eyes now, I've got you. I know where you're going to go. I know what you're going to do. I used to do that to people. Imagine that, to look at how I'm looking at you, to somebody who's throwing racist abuse at you. And I used to, <laughs> they used to excite me. And I used to do that. And I thought to myself, well, I'm definitely scoring today because I'm going to experience that. I want to see if I can score a try, celebrate antagonise somebody so much, look them straight in the eyes like that. And the more I did it, the more aggressive they got. And sometimes I used to be escorted onto the bus. I wasn't even allowed to go at Oldham once. I wasn't even allowed to go into the bar because they said it was too dangerous for me. And just by scoring a try, I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't abusing them. I wasn't doing anything. I was just, and just looking at them like that and smiling and going, oh, I'm not going to score. Because if I heard somebody say something like, yeah, you're rubbish, you're fire, you ain't going to score. And you do something amazing. And I stand there and look at you like this and go... <laughs> How are you going to feel? It's like... At the time, did that feel courageous to you to do that? Or was uh, it buzz. just an instinctive buzz? It was a buzz, buzz for me. I, I got a positive because I think to myself, this, I want to go far in life. I want to make something of myself. And I always felt like from my days trying to compete against my brother and my sister, I've always thought I'm clawing. Even, even to this day, when I retire, people say, you've got a statue, but it's kind of funny. I've just had that chip on my shoulder. I've always wanted to understand people. But Martin, as regards the abuse... It did affect you emotionally, quite obviously, yeah. on a number of different levels. You made it very clear you didn't really want your mum, for instance, to come and witness that. No, who, who wants that? I mean, I've gone to watch David Beckham play, and I'm sure, you know, Posh Spice has been in the stands, and obviously I'm not going to repeat the song. No one likes anything bad happening in their family to be that. I remember watching a documentary recently about Tottenham, and uh, I think it was Kieran Dyer went into the crowd to protect, you know, one of his siblings. And no one likes their family members to experience that kind of things. We're all prepared to go through negativity to get what we want, but no one wants that for our siblings, no one wants that for our parents. You know, I wouldn't want my son 
to experience the kind of bad racism that I experienced. But, you know, I was happy to go through it and I, I would clearly go through it. And it's sad that I went through what I went through. But then I'm glad I went through what I went through because I probably wouldn't be sitting here today talking as passionately as I am about my life. And we mentioned it before, but there are just 10 statues of black sports people in Britain. Five footballers, a couple of rugby league players, a boxer, an athlete and a wheelchair basketballer. So what does it mean to you that yours is one of those? It means a great deal. From what I have experienced growing up in the early 70s, you know, late 60s, born in 65, you know, I just remember it was a normal occurrence. For me, it was nothing out of the ordinary to just be walking down the street and somebody would casually lean out of a car and call you a black bee. That was just the way of the world at that time. And we have come such a long way. So when people talk about, you know, how bad it is now, it's because the way we see the world is different. Our tolerance levels are different now. Us as individuals, us as a, a nation, we have grown. I remember reading a story about Ian Wright the other day about how a fan sent a letter to him or an email apologising for racially abusing him. I've received several messages on, on social media from people who were watching me in the 80s apologising. And I said, no, you don't need to apologise. You know, I, I say, thank you, I'm thanking you because you made me who I am today. Because of you, there is a statue of me outside Wembley that will hopefully go on to inspire my kids and, and, and everybody, you know. So you've got, you've got to take the positives from every situation that you are in and, and, and be thankful. I used to think that I was successful in spite of the racism, but now I realise I'm successful because of the racism. It really is an extraordinary outlook, Martin. It's it does, true. Does it's you... not an outlook. It's the truth. <laughs> well, it's incredible to listen to. I've got to be honest with you, because I, I've never heard somebody speak in, in that way about it, the way that it kind of motivated you. You were obviously awarded an MBE in 1997 as well. Not bad for somebody described by a St. Helens official back in 87 <laughs> as an uncoordinated clown. We perhaps don't need to go there. Obviously, after Wigan, you went to the Broncos. You yeah. returned to Rugby Union with, with Bedford and Wasps. But just briefly as well, life after rugby has required courage too, hasn't it? You, you created this sporting legacy. You enjoyed unbelievable acclaim, lots of glorious moments statues and then the final whistle blows yeah that's what they don't write on the tin about being a sportsman there's incredible highs but then there's always incredible lows you know you're on the top of that mountain top I'm on my knees at Wembley in 94 the adulation of 80,000 fans but then one day all the adulation stops and you're walking down the street and people, oh, you know, even, you know, it's one thing to be remembered, which is fantastic. I don't know what it's like to be anonymous. I've been retired longer than I played and people still remember the things that I did. And, and I'm thankful for that. But then there's still the lows of trying to answer that question that all sportsmen have to answer. You know, what are you doing now? What are you up to now? And uh, trying to be passionate about something, finding a new journey and uh, trying to find something to match what you've uh, been through. And, uh, you know, that there were tough times. Uh, obviously, I've, I've rinsed that reality TV bandwagon, <laughs> like a, f a few retired sportsmen, from being on Strictly Come Dancing to The Weakest Link, uh, the famous rugby players come dine with me, um, to more recently The Hunted and so many TV shows, uh, but they're all fleeting. And sometimes even when you are successful, it could be even worse because then you've got time then to, to, to work out what you want to do and then you end up standing still. And I found out in life, it doesn't matter how successful you are, it doesn't matter if you've got statues, MBEs, money, this, that. If you end up standing still, that is the worst thing. That's when you the negativity, the, the too much time to think comes in and, and you can experience, you know, 
alcohol abuse, relationship failure, all the negative things that many sportsmen have, have experienced, you know, and it's been well documented and will resonate with many. And uh, yeah, I think having a family, having children was the thing that probably saved me. Uh, getting into a stable relationship with my wife, Virginia, being able to think of other people rather than myself. I think that has helped. Finding a new passion. I've got passion for music. I've been DJing for over a decade. I always find that if you can play music that ignites emotion, every time I play a music, every time you hear a song which you love, for that moment, for that three and a half minutes, you're never going to feel bad. You can't. It's impossible. You have a smile on your face. You're thinking about great times when you heard that song. It invokes endorphins. You feel good. I'm involved in uh, sustainability now. I'm very passionate about sustainability, electric vehicle charging, producing a planet which uh, my children will and their children will inherit. I want my children's children's children to be able to be still on a planet which is not ruined and be able to take them to see my statue and breathe clean air. You know, things like that mean a lot to me now. So to be involved with a company like Connected Curb and to, to be invested in a company which aligns with myself, it's got me on a new path, really, of sustainability, of self-development, of health. When positive things happen in your life, you know, it, it just flows out to all areas of your life. And I'm thankful that I got the opportunity to invest in, in Connected Care. But, you know, I think I was at the right time. I was open to it. When I retired, I was of the opinion that I've done all my work. No, that's me, my life. My, that's my life's purpose. At 15, I wanted to be the best rugby player that I wanted to be. And I, I achieved that. I was of the opinion that... If I was truly a successful sportsman, that meant that I, I should have earned enough money in my career to sustain me for the rest of my life. Rugby league probably didn't give as much as maybe professional football or boxing or, or maybe other sports, but, you know, you don't choose your sport, I believe, sometimes in life. Your, your sport chooses you. And so I think I had those hang-ups in me. Lots of sportsmen, you're going to have hang-ups. That, that is the, the nature of the beast, to achieve what you achieve, to sacrifice and to do everything that you do. There is a downside to it. But over the years of, of maturing and, and understanding that you need to surround yourself with the intelligent people who know a lot to learn from them, to read books and do all those sort of things. It's been a slow process, but I'm, I'm thankful for myself allowing me to see the opportunity to be part of Connected Curb. Opportunities come, but you have to be brave enough to, to take them as I was to, to go to witness and, and take that first step, to go to Hong Kong and defy my mother and now to be in this business, to, to invest my family's future in this business. But I believed in it. I say to anyone, if you believe in something, you know, go for it because it, life is not about success and failure. It's about the journey. It's about that uncertainty and to tell yourself that you can do something because I believe most things in life, if you tell yourself you can or you tell yourself you can't, most of the time, you're right. Martin, thank you so much. You've spoken so eloquently about your incredible career. You, you really did touch the heights as a sportsman. You touched the hearts of millions with your exploits as well. Quite evidently, you've needed a bucket full of courage along the way. Thank you so much for telling your emotional sporting story. Thank you. You've been listening to Running on Emotion with me, Alistair Eakin, an Eakin Media production for Audi. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe, like, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our hashtag is Running on Emotion, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Sound is by Norman Goodman, and the series producer is Andrew Sampson. Thanks for listening. Listener.